Hi, my name is Gunnar Froh and I'm your host on the Wonder Mobility Podcast. Welcome back to the Wonder Mobility Podcast. Today I'm speaking with a long-time friend and also client of ours with Valerian from Emmy. Welcome. Hello, very happy to be here. Valerian, you are a pioneer, maybe the pioneer of e-moped sharing in Germany. You've been at it for several years. I think your company is six years old and you have the largest e-moped fleet in Germany. You have hundreds of thousands of users. How did you get started with this in the first place? <laughs> well, the story goes like this, that uh, we were actually sitting together in a park talking about mopeds and how practical they can be in a city environment, but how unpractical it is to own one. And yeah, throughout this discussion, we were like, well, you know, it would be nice to to ride a moped from time to time, but not really own one. And, and that's basically how the idea started. And from that point on, we had been working on the idea for moped sharing. This was around 2014, I think, when the idea first came about, right? Exactly. That was in uh, in summer 2014. So we were still at university studying in our master's degree. And we were thinking about what to do with our life. Basically, we were applying for different jobs. And of course, there were all sorts of opportunities, but we, we actually really wanted to do something ourselves. I think you have a technical background from, from your studies and When you, when you said at the time you were looking at different jobs and different alternatives, what were you looking at? Well, I, I think it's rather a classic approach that we took. So I, I studied industrial engineering, first at uh, TU Darmstadt and then TU Berlin. So I did basically what all of my colleagues at, at university did. So I looked into OEMs. I, I, I did an internship with Volkswagen there with its sales division, with international strategy division. I looked into consulting and, and tried to figure out whether this would be something for me. I, I even did an internship in audit, but I then realized, well, it's, it's all not really what I wanted to do. And, and so Yeah, starting my own company came more and more into focus. At the time when you did this, what did new mobility look like in Germany? So right now, it's at least when you live in a bigger city, it's you cannot basically ignore it. It's everywhere. Your scooters are everywhere. Other vehicles, you see people riding around. The other day, um, two weeks ago, I was riding a bike home in Hamburg and I counted eight Emmy scooters driving by like on the way home. It's everywhere. But this wasn't the case 2014, 15, what did this whole industry look like in Berlin, for example, where you were? Well, this this industry, it, it had just started, I would say. So uh, Car2Go was already existing and they were offering their smart vehicles in the city. But other than that, there wasn't much going on in the market. But actually, we could see that people here in Berlin were really open to, to ideas of different ways to get around in the city. And they adopted Car2Go quite nicely. And, and so we saw a potential there to actually offer them something differently and even a vehicle type that they didn't use to, to use in, for, for getting around in the city. And uh, this is why we started here. I would love to talk a little bit about the vehicle types because you are bringing e-mopeds on the street, basically 
two-wheelers that are not super common in Germany, unlike maybe Italy or Spain or so, where also private ownership of these two-wheelers is super common. And people mostly, I imagine, experience this type of vehicle with you for the first time. What do you know about this, about your users, like demographics, where they come from? Have they ridden these kind of mopeds before? And how does that fit into their overall mix of maybe also other vehicles or transport options that they use? So it's very true. I mean, the, the scooter is not really a common vehicle, I would say, here in Germany. However, we did ask Before we even started this, we went out on the streets and we asked people like, uh, okay, so what's your experience with that vehicle type? And actually more people than we thought had already been on a, on a scooter, moped, whatever we call it before. So either they've done it in their youth or they've done it when they were on holidays. So the classic, I don't know, right in Thailand or yeah, in Mallorca when on holidays there. So there is some experience in riding the scooter, but still it's not a common um, way to, to move around in the city. But that's exactly what our approach was. So it's, it still is a really, really good way to get around in a German city as well. Of course, you might not want to do it all around in winter, but still it, it's practical. You don't look for parking spaces as long. And so it's, it's good to ride it in a city. Regarding the customer, basically, when we started in Berlin, as I said, Car2Go was already present. So people had already learned that you don't really need to own your vehicle, but you can rather choose the best fitting vehicle regarding the situation. So we didn't have to do too much there. And our customers were mainly recruited from people that were using car sharing as well. And you mentioned some of the advantage, you touched on some of the advantage of this type of vehicle, but what's behind it? Why are you pushing this form? I was reading up on Emmy's vision again, and I was reading things like, well, we want to see a city free of transport emissions and traffic jams, city with more room where vehicles don't take up limited space. What's, what are some of the sort of radical advantages of this type of vehicle that you are maybe seeing that you want to push? But where are the limitations you mentioned the winter? Is that a strict limitation or, or others that you are coming across? Mm -hmm. So basically, we see huge advantages in the vehicle type itself. So it's a small vehicle. You can be with two persons on the vehicle, transport two persons. And while doing that, you take up way less space than you would in a car. And, and so this is where our vision comes from, where we say, if more of the rides that are being done today in the city are done with those kinds of vehicles, then just by that, you're reducing the space that is used within a city and that space gets freed up for all other kinds of stuff. So you can then have more space to walk around in the city. You can have more trees and everything. It, it, it can just be a nicer city to live in. But the vehicle type isn't one thing. The sharing mode that we offer it in is the other thing. So for one, if everybody now owns their own scooter, Germany isn't the perfect place in that sense that it's, you know, it's raining, it's, it gets cold in winter. You, you don't want to always ride on a scooter. And so it's nice to have the option, but not to have to ride it all the time as if you were owning one. For that purpose, we, we much rather see other service operators 
that offer different vehicle types, so cars, for example, when it's raining or when it's just too cold. Of course, public transportation plays a big role in that as well as your standard way to get around in the city for your everyday rides. Can you talk a bit about the impact of Corona last year on the business? How did how did it evolve and where are you today compared to maybe two years ago before all of this happened? So Corona has had a huge impact on us, uh, no doubt about that. So right from the first lockdown, we could see our numbers dropping actually almost to a degree of like 80% less rides per vehicle compared to other days when there was no pandemic going on. And actually, it's improved over the course of summer, so last summer and this summer, but it's still not to a normal degree. And we can just see that basically there is just less mobility going on in a city. So it's still less rides in total, and we can still see the effect, even though, of course, now we are hoping for more relief in that sense, with everything getting back more to a normal state. And I realize it's still early. Even some weeks ago, we still had a lockdown in Germany. Now we're coming out of it. It's also a seasonal business, like you mentioned before. We're entering into sort of the top season uh, for you. What's your, what can you see already or what's your expectation? Maybe how the, this summer will turn out compared to two years ago before Corona? Do you, is it, are you able to make some forecasts already or maybe it's too early to tell? Right now, it feels like it's going to be, well, in the middle, in the middle of the summer 2019 and the summer 2020. So it's better than it was in 2020, but still it's not close to being comparable to 2019. Of mm. course, any prediction now towards the future is even more difficult because you just don't know how if, if there's going to be maybe another time of restrictions, whatever the, the, the Ryans will do to us. So it's hard to predict what's, what's going to happen, but it looks right now that it's not going to be as bad as in 2020, but still not as good as in 2019. Mm. I quickly mentioned this in the beginning in the intro about hundreds of thousands of users. I mean, uh, you are, because you were one of the first, you've been doing this for a while. You have some brand recognition in this region. How many users, if you can share that roughly, do you have at the moment? And what could you do with them going forward? Maybe in addition, in addition, if, if there is anything like that to giving them access to these mopeds, because I think you have a huge sizable group of sort of early adopters of mobility that, that are your clients. Yes, definitely. So right now we are at above 340,000 customers that have signed up since we started with our service. Of course, they are very, really open to all sorts of new mobility. So right now we are market leader in moped sharing here in, in Germany. But of course, we are thinking of ways on what to do with that kind of customer base. And there are different options to that. So for one, we have big experience in the moped sharing business. And so we are, of course, all the time are contemplating what our next move is towards that. So which other cities could profit most from the kind of service that we are offering, where we see best market chances. But then at the same time, we are looking in the cities where we are already active in, what could another offer be? So should it be another vehicle type? What else could we do with the vehicle type that we are offering right now? It's just 
too early to tell what we're going to do with that. But there are all sorts of different options that we are pursuing right now and looking into going forward. Interesting. Okay. Keeping it a little bit vague because it's like strategy yes. and it's forward looking, <laughs> but that's okay. We're looking at the market and basically, yeah, researching, studying and making our own also, of course, investment case. And it's kind of a consensus between the big consultants how vehicle sharing is going to yeah, grow really drastically in the coming years. And some numbers, if you put together McKinsey, BCG, Goldman Sachs, they would say last year worldwide revenue on vehicle sharing providers like ME about 8 billion, and then 2030, probably 480 billion, like 60% per year, huge growth, mm. also going into other use cases, daily rentals, maybe monthly arrangements and so on. And our hypothesis basically is that we, that, well, there are going to be a lot of operators in the world, different use cases, and also a lot of the technology that could be shared between them. It, it would make sense to provide a platform that you can take off the shelf what maybe everybody needs and then decide some areas to focus on, to differentiate. And you are sort of yeah, using this approach at the moment, but where are you differentiating? Because you are also basically in this game for a long time. You've um, optimized a lot of things. Where are the areas where, as an operator over time, you are doing things potentially different from other operators in other geographies mm -hmm. or now in the same when you actually know when, when things are getting more crowded? Yeah. So for one, I see a clear first mover advantage, and that breaks down into actually different aspects. For one, A, we have an already existing customer base, and that customer base has trust in us and our brand, and they know how we do things. And actually, it's shown if you look at other markets as well, but in, in our own also. So we had Coop as an early competitor here in mm -hmm. 2016 in our market, and they could never reach the kind of numbers that we were reaching. I think yes, that's and by the way, for, for people not from Dach or not familiar, Coop was backed <laughs> by Bosch <laughs> and built by BCG Digital Ventures. So it was not somebody like your little neighborhood startup. It was basically a very serious entry into the market, right? Yeah, yeah, they were going into the market full force, but we we were already there, we were already present and we we had already built our foundation, I would say, in the market and so it was really difficult to attack us in in that position and we can see that in other markets as well where there are already existing established players that are doing really well against big competitors coming in with huge vehicle fleets where you can still see that the original players, so to say, have kept their market share or, or could even build on that market share and extend it. So I believe that being the first mover is advantageous in, in that. But also, we've been doing that for a long now, time now. And being first mover, we've had the most time now to build up on experience. And that kind of experience we are using for all sorts of building our processes, for building our operations. And with that kind of experiences that we've made, I believe that we are just basically better at providing the service at a lower cost, internal cost for us. And therefore, we have that kind of advantage just to know what it really comes down to, what we need to do to offer that kind of service, but to offer it in a really efficient way as well, so that it is profitable 
in, in that sense for us as a company. I would love to dig a little bit deeper on this because I also think a lot of people are listening are working in the space and like this is really kind of an existential question about how to compete. Mm -hmm. And when you have a first mover advantage, does it how important is the like consumer side, something like brand, maybe even loyal customer loyalty, mm -hmm. but then the internal side operations. Some people assume that there is no customer loyalty because it's about proximity. So whatever scooter is yeah. in my street, that's what I'm going to take. I'm not going to walk an extra mile because I, or a block because I like this color. But do you, is there such a thing as customer loyalty or is it all mm -hmm. about operations basically? I, I think you already touched on, on the most important aspect of it. So I believe without reliability and without availability, there will be no customer loyalty. So a customer will not say, well, because I just like that brand so much more. So I'm willing to walk another kilometer to get to my next vehicle just because they are so nice. That's not going to happen, but that doesn't need to happen. So in my eyes, when competing in a market, of course, I need to take care of the basics. I need to make sure that there's a vehicle around from my company so that the customer can use it. But then I do see customer loyalty in a sense where the customer has to decide which app to open first. And if there's an offer for the customer, like if there's a, a moped of ours right around the corner, then it's actually it's the first app that he's going to open is going to be the crucial one because then the ride gets made through us. So I believe customer loyalty is working in a sense that which app do I open first? And if then I can make an offer for the customer, whereas I say, oh, there's this, a moped right around the corner, take it, then the customer won't open another app. And so for me, this is the important aspect. So I want to be top of mind for the customer. And we are using our brand that way just to have it out of the like pragmatic approach of, oh, we are just a way to get from A to B, but uh, we want to include the lifestyle aspect in that as well so that the customer actually really sympathizes with the way that we see mobility being done in the city and that the way we picture it, he pictures himself in and therefore uses our app first, opens our app first and therefore chooses our moped. Interesting. So you are basically describing the customer side as like a two-step process where there's like a hygiene factor of availability. You don't think mm -hmm. people would have a lot of tolerance if it weren't available. And then you are trying to build differentiation and brand loyalty, basically, if you are available in the same place. How do you monitor this first part? I don't even know if you call it availability, but something like a service level or when there's intent or when there's interest that people meet Supply. Yeah. How, how do you call this? How do you monitor that? Well, you can see that for one by app openings itself. And so how many app openings actually translate into a reservation and a ride afterwards. And digging deeper into that, you can see when the app is opened, how far away are the, the next available scooters. And you can actually see then a declining value. The farther the mopeds are away, the less likely it gets for the customers to actually reserve and then eventually rent that kind of scooter. 
what's roughly like an acceptable distance that you've figured out is necessary for high conversion? So it's somewhere between 100 and 200 meters. Wow, super short, basically. Yes. And what's, uh, I mean, do you then look on a city level or like on a neighborhood level, what kind of service level you have for app openings in those areas? So when looking at the kind of service level, it needs to come down to the, the neighborhood level because otherwise, you know, if you have clusters in a city and there are just a bunch of scooters at the same space, then your overall density might look good in a city, but it's, it's not working in that sense to get a lot of rents. So it needs to be on a neighborhood basis. But of course, that's the harder thing to determine because it's a really dynamic approach to get the density in, in a neighborhood sense. If you can share this, I'm not sure if it's getting too much into the sort of also, yeah, let's say IP almost, what's a good benchmark for like percentage of app openings that result in a scooter nearby? And what you mentioned, an acceptable is like 200 meters, for example. If you are in a mature market as a, well run operator, roughly how many percent of cases of app openings should, should people find a scooter that's nearby? What's what's a benchmark at the moment in, in, in this industry? It's a good question. And it's kind of hard to determine the benchmark right there because, well, if I have a high percentage of people opening the app and then that resulting into a rent, that means as well that I have probably a lot of vehicles that are being not used in that area. Because to get that kind of availability, there need to be a lot of scooters the other way around. So if I get lots of openings into the app, but only little rents, it can mean that my mopeds are actually being rented out quite a lot. But it's then, again, not really to the satisfaction of the customer. And it's not going to be a sustainable approach because the customer will always feel disappointed when opening the app and there's no vehicle around. So yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult to, to give your, you a precise answer on that because it has uh, lots of factors playing into that. And therefore, it can only be a combination of other KPIs playing into that. Mm -hmm. And when you, this is a little bit the, the customer's view, what you're trying to create there, basically availability, but then ideally a brand association. So if several are available, we choose you or go to your app first. This going to your app first, before we go into the operation side, um, would no longer work when people get a habit of going to some aggregator or mm -hmm. yeah, some other maybe big ride hailing provider and then there are all the vehicle options or some of the vehicle options integrated there as well. How do you look at that? Do you think that is something yeah, you, you sometimes have to do as an addition to also tap mm -hmm. into users that weren't aware of you yet? or but, but are you trying to avoid maybe your own brand or are we more going in a future where you, where it might be super common that you operators don't even have their own front end because everything's basically visible on Google Maps, for example, and then it's just yep. booked through that without your own front end. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting question as well, because I, I don't have a clear answer to that either. So my, my ideal scenario is I have a strong brand out there and I've, I have most usage coming through my very own app. And I basically own that kind of customer data. And for other customers, 
who wouldn't maybe have considered or have never really shown much interest, they get steered towards my, my mopeds because they are on an aggregator. And then I get additional revenue, which I wouldn't have gotten without those kinds of platforms that then offer my mopeds to, to those kinds of customers as well. But of course, we always have to keep in mind, we don't want to establish that big, big, powerful platform that is then able to dictate the kind of percentages that we have to pay for each ride that they have performed through their platform. So yeah, that is difficult. And I now talking about Google Maps, for example, if everybody then chooses to go through Google Maps, of course, my kind of brand experience gets lessened a little because they don't see my, my interface. And so it's more difficult to interact with the customers. I see a way around that with offering just additional services throughout my app exclusively and just giving the broad access through those kinds of platforms that it's possible for me to actually differentiate the kind of product that I'm offering. So for the standard service that I'm offering, I can go through platforms and this is the kind of approach that we are following right now. So we, we get the additional visibility in platforms, but we try still try to have additional offers, additional services that are then better served through our app. And therefore, the customer is still uh, seeing a benefit to go through our app and is actually more bound to our brand there. What could be some examples of additional services? Are you talking about a monthly pass, for example? Or? Yeah, something like that. So it's a monthly pass. It's uh, minute packages that you offer. It's um, just additional features. So maybe it could be extended reservation times. There, there's a bunch of things that you can actually offer to the customer, all sorts of kinds of loyalty programs that should make it more attractive for the customer to, to come through your very own app. Let's talk a little bit about the other side, the operations side, that basically clients, users don't see except for they see the result, if it's charged and if it's available. But what kind of improvements have you seen on that side in the last years? And again, maybe how would you be looking at that? Maybe like vehicles available on suite like turnaround times or like a cost per, per charge or so. Mm -hmm. were, there, like, were there a lot of improvements initially, but now not so much anymore? We're almost at a steady state or does it continue to improve significantly year on year still? How are you looking at this potential on the operations side? Well, I, I, I see for one, I, I look back at quite a lot of improvements that we could achieve already, but I see a lot of potential to improve further on. So, and, and this is, yeah, basically the, the examples that you, that you mentioned. So the kind of availability rate that we can offer, this is, of course, highly dependent on the kind of moped that is being offered. So, How, how long does maintenance take? How often do you need to take the scooter into a maintenance mode? How long does it take to switch the battery packs? And uh, how long is the range of the, of the mopeds? So those are probably more the external factors, the kind of, okay, so how well developed is the moped for the sharing purpose? But then it's within operations itself as well. So how many 
mopeds can I swap per hour? Do I get or do, did I find a special approach on how to increase the number? Do I have the right kind of processes in place? Do I have the right kind of technology in place to enable our employees to swap as many batteries in an hour as they possibly can? And, and so starting out in 2015, you could imagine this was a rather, um, well, the, the, the kind of approach we, we took was, okay, so there's a route uh, right now, there are 10 scooters, 10 mopeds that you need to swap the batteries. And now, now please go and, and do that. And this process has changed a lot to a really dynamic approach on where we have different people, different employees driving around in the city and really spontaneous decision made by our systems on which moped to approach next and what to do next so that it's actually most efficient and therefore at a very low cost approach how to, to swap the next battery. What kind of improvements can you still hope to see now at this point that you've done this and you've optimized it for several years? So let's say if, if you imagine kind of operations cost per trip, if you were to somehow mm -hmm. divide the total operations cost by number of trips, will that go down from year to year? Would you yeah. hope to get like a 10% improvement still between now and next year, for example, or maybe much less at this point? What kind of rate of innovation is um, I, I mean, the, the, the kind of 10%, uh, it's probably something around 5 to 10%. But um, mm -hmm. yeah, there's still potential in the processes itself to improve them and therefore get that kind of increase done. There are other factors that will help to even further improvements. So it's range of the of the moped that of course has a huge factor because with each additional kilometer that the battery pack can bring you, that means it's less often that you have to even go to the moped and therefore recharge the battery. And that, that results in lower costs. But there are other ideas as well and that it can be or the customer can actually help out to swap the batteries as well, for example. But those are ideas that we are not contemplating right now. But of course, it's always in the strategic options. You mentioned the impact of range. And I guess on the operations cost, a part of it is under your control and process you can optimize. And then the other part is basically yeah, determined by the vehicle itself, how much it has to go into maintenance and range and so on. And you have a multi-brand fleet at the moment. So you're running... I believe at the moment, Covex, News, and Yadi uh, mopeds. Mm -hmm. And you had also others in the past. So I think this has been also an area where you uh, made a lot of experiences so far. What are you mostly looking at when you're making that vehicle choice for a next order? You mentioned mm -hmm. range as a big factor. What are other factors? So is that by far the dominant one? Uh, no, I mean, okay, first touching upon the topic of the many different moped brands. There, I would say it shows that we've been on the market for quite a while. And actually, in the vehicle sector, so much has happened since we started. And so the kind of factors by which we choose a moped 
they changed over time as well, because you could just have then a different selection of mopeds to choose from. And uh, that, that made it different. Right now, I would say the main factors are um, basically it's the TCO approach, the total cost of ownership. So it's it's coming down to price. It's coming down to availability, so reliability of the scooter and therefore resulting in availability. And it's coming down to, to range because that's the huge impact on operation cost that you're going to see there. But yeah, so so basically it's, it's for us these three factors that we are taking into consideration when looking at new mopeds that we we are determining whether to choose them or not. Mm -hmm. And we basically, as a yeah, software platform provider, we were always looking at how to, how, what could we possibly do to enable our clients to grow faster because that's essentially driving our business. Yeah, vehicles that are hosted on the platform and sort of a newer product that we've yeah, announced some weeks ago and that you were also a part of this big first announcement was the Wonder Capital, basically this idea that now when operators want to expand their fleet, it's not only about Do I have the demand or can I run this? But the capital outlay for the investment into newer vehicles. Can you talk a little bit about that sphere at the moment? So to what extent is that a constraint to expanding your business? And what are the options out there? But what are also limitations when yeah, financing these um, fleet expansions that you come across? Mm -hmm. So... Financing has always been a huge topic for us. So I, I would say that's pretty normal in every startup life. But there's not only the equity financing that we had to take care of, but to get some form of fleet financing as well. And for us, it was always the issue for that kind of fleet financing. We had to talk to the traditional leasing companies that were really set in their way to to actually determine risk. So for us, it was always difficult as a really young company to convince them to give us that kind of financing solution that probably any any older, more settled company would get. And therefore, it's always been a huge topic for us. And that's why it made such a big difference for us as well to to get this kind of new advanced form of financing solution that we got offered through Wonder Capital. The idea is that you touched upon traditional financing institutions. What data can you send them that, they, that actually gives them confidence that they can actually interpret and how outdated is it? And our idea is basically that we can, by hosting the software, see a lot of the operations metrics and with our industry experience, be able to interpret them and then basically yeah, make more reliable predictions on who will be able to handle fleet expansions and basically allocate capital in this way. And the other thing was basically then creating sort of a portfolio of operators in Europe, North America that are having access to capital in this data-driven approach and then get this portfolio refinanced with a larger bank that could maybe look at this portfolio in a different way than in, as an individual situation. But I think that's yeah, something we also didn't expect to get into like a year and a half ago until we yeah, realized it's a real bottleneck, but also such an opportunity to leverage data and sort of create a platform so that multiple 
operators in different geographies are basically coming together as a portfolio in this. And I think that touches already upon some of the limitations. Right now, you've seen a lot of growth. You mentioned 340,000 users. I mentioned the other day, I counted eight trips, <laughs> like live trips on my way back. It's super universal in the big cities. And yet, it's still only the beginning of sort of yeah, eating your way into mobility in cities. A number that I read recently was um, Berlin is the vehicle sharing capital in Europe and roughly 1%, between 1% and 2% of the trips in the city are on shared vehicles. So it's really still incredibly small. What are other limitations that you are coming across and what do you think would most drive your growth for the coming years? If, if this were different, if this were removed, if this were to happen, this would yeah, drive growth a lot because after all that happened, it's still actually small compared to the total market. Mm-hmm. Well, I do see um, the, the way we, we, we set out is actually the, the private vehicle in the city has so many advantages in terms of regulation. So you can actually park a, a, a private owned car really, really cheap in a city where actually space is normally really expensive. So if you want to buy an apartment or rent an apartment in the city, you, you really have to pay a lot for the space. But then when it comes to parking your, your very own vehicle in the in the city, that's really cheap. And uh, I, I do think that it's actually too cheap and that makes it too attractive to have a, a, a private owned vehicle in the city, which is just a weird way to to uh, subsidize the private vehicle and that shouldn't be that way and i think everybody living in a city would benefit from a, an, a shift that would be done there because then we come back to our vision it's a it's a city that's freed up from private car ownership and that then has more space more space to distribute and more space that actually people living in the city can feel comfortable in and I think that if a shift happens in that sense, then we can actually see a way bigger expansion of those kinds of mobility services as well. That's super interesting that you're pointing to this because that's an area that it's getting discussed within like a new mobility kind of uh, circle, but most people are not so aware of this, that they are actually receiving a big subsidy every day if they live in a city and find a you know public parking spots mm-hmm. for free or even the way it's charged at the moment is probably not a market rate what we pay for inner city parking or when we when we park for free on public property. So this kind of curbside management that puts an actual price that's closer to the actual value of that place onto the person using it. Yeah, I agree would have a huge difference because we are always basically driven by also financial incentives. But that's a political um, decision. To what extent do you think this is underway, likely to happen. What shift are you seeing? Do you even spend any energy also personally kind of trying to maybe influence that? Or do you think I'm 110% busy <laughs> with my company here now? So that's going to either happen or not, but we see. No, I mean, w- what I'm doing here, of course, maybe in the beginning, my ideas weren't so like, I, I would love to tell the story. Like I looked at what's going wrong in the city and I realized it's mobility and this is why I found, founded this company and I want to change uh, that. 
But it evolved more into that. So in the beginning, it was more like, okay, it was my curiosity and that I wanted to see what it means to be an entrepreneur. But uh, now it's changing more into, okay, so what can we do about the way we are living together? And what can we change about that? Of course, it's all the time. I need to have my company in mind as well. So it's it's always a mixed approach. But with what I'm doing, I, I think both looking at both things will actually then benefit from from one another. And it's being pushed more this kind of agenda because uh, there's more attention on the topic. So before or in the first couple of years when we when we started this and we went to municipalities, there wasn't much attention that we were getting from them because basically everybody was stuck in their way of, um, well, you know, urban mobility has looked pretty much the same for, for the last decades. And I don't think you as a company will do much about it. We're going to focus on public transportation because there's going to be lots of money flowing that way and that's going to show the difference. And now politicians and municipalities have realized, okay, so there's actually private money going into that space, private companies that are shaking up the way how we are moving in the city. And it's not always to the to the good extent. We can see that with many providers flowing into the market and, and then there's uh, disputes about public space and how the operators take care of their fleet and how that makes the city look. So there there are, of course, difficulties now in, in the beginning, and that's why there's more attention on the topic. And this is why I'm having more and more of those kinds of discussions to actually get into the overlaying thoughts of how do we actually want to live together in the city and that kind of public discussions that you have to do. So... Yes, I'm I'm having those kinds of discussions and I do see, especially in the last few years, a lot of movement in the topic and more attention from politicians that actually see that there's now a possibility to really change something about that. And of course, I'm seeing also other opinions and the, the kind of fears that are out there if we want to tackle something like the private car ownership because it's something that's really, um, well, it's been like that for many, many years now and we want to we want to change that. So there's lots of fears around that and so it's a emotional discussion but it's actually good to see things getting more dynamic and topics getting discussed that I wouldn't have dreamed of in 2015 that we could actually have this broad discussion on how to really, really change the way that we are moving in the city. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that's been a very open, honest discussion. Thanks a lot for sharing your insights. You've been doing this for many years now. I agree that the transition is happening. You were early to it uh, in, the, in the right space. You're doing a big part, making this alternative so visible in the city, the red scooters uh, everywhere basically now. And with hundreds of thousands of people signed up, that's basically showing you how it's also wanted. I look forward to hopefully seeing you at the summit in the fall. The podcast is our sort of way around not being able to have a summit last year, meeting the people, talking a little bit deeper with 
those we would love to see on the stage there. And I think you are already, if I remember this correctly, committed to, I think, be on one of the, the panels on that day in October. So I will definitely be there. <laughs> that's super cool. And uh, yeah, hope we will not have the variants that you mentioned and we will not have another sort of restriction, but we have a really awesome summer and your prediction there will be somewhere between 2019 and 2020 is just wrong and off and uh, it will be the best summer ever. So it's not too late for that. Always working on that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot for taking the time today, Valerian. Thank you very much, Una, for for your interest. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.